Jesus, we love you. We love you, Lord. You are so good to us. You give us, well, first of all, you give us yourself, Lord. You love us, and you loved us before we even knew what it meant to, to be loved in a divine way. And so we thank you for your love, Jesus. We thank you for the significance of, of having that sort of foundation. How many of us realize, Lord, that you can't fall off the floor? And the floor of our existence is your deep love for us, your abiding love for us. And we thank you for that. And Lord, we thank you that you've given us, in, in, inside of the boundaries of your great love, you've given us relationships with other people. Inside of which we can grow more and more like you. We can become like you, Lord, through relationships with other people. And we call that whole thing that happens fellowship. We thank you, Lord, for the triangular nature of that, that whenever I join my heart with another person and you're in the middle of it, that there are eternal ramifications, that this moves beyond a conversation about weather or sports or family or things like that, and it gets into deep, deep things. And so, Lord, we ask for the expansion of this of fellowship into uh, our everyday lives. We don't want to just do it for a few minutes in the middle of a worship service. We want it to be, we want to be characterized by it and marked by it. And so we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Speaking of fellowship, uh, you just, Rob mentioned that they're having a Maranatha meal tonight at their home at 5.30. You can see Rob for details. I know that the Cowops also have a, a, a meal tomorrow night at 6 o'clock in their home. And Anne, if you raise your, your hand, she's there midway back over here with her hand up. They're, they have room at their home. And then also, you're going to have more than one uh, Pesach or Passover uh, Seder meal at your home. And did I get it right? There's Saturday and Monday in your home? So Saturday night and Monday night. The Monday night one, I think, is 6 No, it's, yeah, 6 o'clock. And Saturday is also 6. So Saturday, almost a week from now, and then the Monday after that, Six o'clock at the Callops home, they'll be doing a full Seder, and they'll follow this, uh, this service called Behold the Lamb uh, by Stan Kellner. I don't know if any of you know Stan Kellner, but it's uh, uh, a great opportunity. If you've never done a Passover meal, it's, it's uh, really a significant thing, particularly exploring our connectedness to this. Um, so there's that. Uh, let's pray, and we'll get, dive into the Word together. Jesus, we love you, and we ask that you would, in the same way that we, we know that you're present when we declare your worth in our songs, or when we bow our heads in prayer, uh, or when we have that fellowship, in the same way, Lord, we know that you reveal yourself, that you make yourself known, that you manifest yourself in our gathering when your word is declared. And so, Lord, my, my goal, my entire goal really is to get out of the way, to have as, as little uh, to offer that comes out of my own mind or my own thoughts and as much as I can that comes directly from yours. Now, I know it's not a perfect process, Lord. I'm, I'm, I'm flawed in many ways, but I pray, for, I pray for an anointing that would come on me now that would allow me to, to minimize me that I would decrease, that you might increase. Jesus, this is such a significant week. 
and so we ask that you would help us to mine your word now uh, for something very deep in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to uh, tell you just quickly, th- this is known, you know, Holy Week, but I got to tell you just our theology, our philosophy of, of, of church, I, I, don't, I don't mean this in any way to, to sound, uh, um, you know, derogatory towards any other church because I really don't have, carry that in my heart. But I've always had this idea, this idea um, deep in me that the last thing in the world I want to do is put on a service on Easter Sunday that we would never do another Sunday again. You know, so it's kind of like you have a special service on Sunday where people come who never come to church and they see it and they think, wow, this is what church looks like. And if they ever do come back, they never see that again. I mean, we, we believe that every Sunday is a Sunday we've gathered for one single purpose. It's because this God-man is alive. He's resurrected. He's the most alive man. And we celebrate that with everything we have every week. We do acknowledge, I think, that, you know, that for some reason, culturally, Easter doesn't rise to the level of, like, Halloween. Right? You know, I mean, we, we spend more money on... I, I, I know a statistic will blow you away. I think we spend more money on costumes for our pets at Halloween than we do on missions. Does that surprise you? I mean, it's... Uh, so there are cultural holidays, and I know Easter doesn't rise to that level, but really, my, my view is we are resurrection people, and we celebrate Easter, or the resurrection every Sunday, and so we will make a big deal out of it next week, but we're not going to probably do a bunch of bells and whistles. We're going to gather together, and we, I would encourage you to invite people to come with you because they're so prone to come on this one day, and we will present the gospel, and we will, we will make it straightforward and real, and we will ask the Lord to move in our service, and so that's that. Open your Bibles to I'm being two places today. I could be all over the place. The, 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 somebody says, oh, I love it when you come back from traveling because you're on fire, but you're, I also have jet lag brain, and so you're, I could be all over the place. But I, I, I can tell you that I have something deep that's in my heart that I don't know that I'll be able to communicate the depth of it. It's one of those challenges when the Lord speaks to you in your own kind of quiet place, and then you're like, man, I don't even know how to get at this, really. But I'll be uh, in Matthew 26, just uh, verse 8. I could be in Mark 14, the same thing said there. And then I'm going to get into John's gospel. And I'll tell you why. I'm, ta- I'm going to be talking about a, a, going through a particular story. Uh, and it, to me, it's significant because it begins this final week of Jesus' life. It occurs in this time. There's actually, uh, th- this is a, 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 an event that happens that might be uh, if, if you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you have something like this talked about in, in each gospel. In Luke chapter 7, it may be a separate event. Where, I mean, I think it is. Some really smart people believe it's one event that you can harmonize that because Luke doesn't really care about chronology. It appears as though it happens much earlier, but it could be that it's one single event. And there's actually a cool tie-in if it is one event. But I think it's two events, that there was this event that happened up in the Galilee with a sinful woman, and then I believe that Matthew and Mark and John detail this event that happens just the week before Jesus is crucified and the days leading up to his crucifixion in Bethany. And so we're going to talk about this, uh, this account, and I'll get at it, like I said, in Matthew, and then we'll jump over to John's account. And if I were to title this message, I would call it, Why This Waste?, Why this waste? Which is exactly what the disciples ask. And we'll know particularly it's Judas that's asking this question. But I love the fact that Matthew says they asked so that we don't feel like we're off the hook. Right? Isn't it easy to scapegoat uh, those who 
who questioned the work of God into only the betrayers. It's kind of like when Jesus says in the institution of the Lord's Supper, one of you betrays me, and they're all like, oh, man, it's me. Um, because they all know that they're, you know, they've fallen short. And so when it says they all asked, I'll get it to how I think this works in groupthink. But when the disciples saw this, and I'll explain what this is in a bit, they were indignant. What's, it, what's another word for indignant? Ticked. You know, it means mad. I mean, it's only, you only have so many emotions. It really means to be mad. They were mad when they saw this. And we'll explain what this is. And they asked this question, why this waste? And I'll, the reason I wanted to start here is because Matthew and Mark use this particular word. Uh, and it, it really hit my heart in a deep way. And I really, I, I've studied this passage a lot of years. But I really went into this word that we use in the English waste that's here. Why this waste? When I hear that word, I think that they're talking about it in the way that my mother would talk to me uh, at the dinner table about children who are starving in another part of the world when I didn't finish my uh, Brussels sprouts, which are like basically eating, you know, food that you've... Uh, they're not good. They are food, but they're not, I actually really like Brussels sprouts, just not enough to eat them. Um, but there, you know, it's like when there was a, you know, do you know when you're a kid and you, it, how many of you grew up with siblings in the household? And when food goes around that you like, and it's say that, you know, you like the mashed potatoes and it's going around and you get the mashed potatoes, you put like three quarters of the bowl on your plate because you're afraid you're not going to get enough. It's called the scarcity principle. And, you're, and your parents have to kind of help you understand if they're good parents, that God's a God of abundance and you're not going to starve. But you put, all the, you put way more on your plate than you can eat, and eventually your mother says something like, why all this waste? I mean, you're going to waste all this food. And, it, and in many cases, one of our dear missionary friends in Guatemala would take with his kids when they came in, uh, they, he would teach them, because they never had enough to eat, when they would put too much food on their plate, he would put it in the refrigerator and then bring it back out the next meal and say, once you finish, you can move on. And so that's the way this typically hits me. Why this waste? But it's not the sense of, it's not really what's, what's, what's envisioned in this word. The word that's used in Matthew and Mark that's attributed to the disciples, but again, almost certainly Judas, why this waste, is a Greek word that means utter destruction. It means to destroy. It means to ruin someone or something. It can be applied to money. It can be applied to objects like in this case, this woman broke or wasted. She destroyed a, 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 a case that held spikenard or perfume, maybe an alabaster box that she broke it. And it may be that the breaking is referring to that. But really, it also refers to people, the destruction of people, the destruction which consists of an eternal misery in hell is the word that's it's used here. And so this exact word is used by Jesus in John 17 when he says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction or the son of perdition or the son of waste, the son of apoleia. It's the Greek word that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus is talking here about Judas that I haven't lost any of them except the one who is given over to Satan uh, for, you know, for, for where he is. And so do you see the irony here that probably Judas is, a, is looking at this woman's gift and calls it destruction. He calls it ruin. He calls it something destined for hell. But it's actually that 
attitude that's gotten into his heart that he's evidencing with his mouth that ultimately leads him to Jesus calling him a son of destruction. Jesus, act, or not Jesus, but later in 2 Thessalonians, the Antichrist himself was referred to in the same exact way as the son of destruction, this, this same word. So this word is a much deeper word than just you didn't finish your mashed potatoes. You left some on your plate. It's, a, it's an extraordinarily profound word. And the reason it's important to me is this. As we enter into this week, I believe it's a problem and a custom within our most of our churches that we... we envision our walk with God from Sunday to Sunday. And so we show up on Hosanna in the highest Sunday and we come back on Resurrection Sunday and we oftentimes don't pass through this week. But if you want to get to resurrection, if you want to get to where there is life that will never taste death again, at least until the Lord returns, we have to pass through death. We have to pass through, through this word that, that I believe Judas uses here, Apollea. We have to pass through it, and it's a significant thing. I actually believe, this is just Jeff's commentary, I believe that, when, that whether Judas knows it or not, he's actually prophesying over the Lord. That his, that his body will be destroyed. That he will experience the destruction that happens on the cross and die to be raised again, and that nobody quite gets the significance of what's being said, except for, I think, two people in the room. I'll tell you who they are in just a second. One of them is Jesus. And so, let me skip over now. Flip over in your Bibles to John chapter 12. I, if I had to choose one way to tell the story of what happens, the, the, this thing that they're referring to, it'd be John's accounting for it, because it's so full of beauty, and it's so full of significance, and story, and you ha- I mean, I, 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 could, I could almost literally use the entire book of John to talk about eight verses here, because so much is wrapped up in this, so I'll just try to make short order of it, because Iglesias Ciudad wants to start by 2.30. <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to do this. Y'all are going to have to just come to my house on other days, and we'll sit around and talk about the word together. Wouldn't that be fun? Why don't you do it? So six days, it says in John chapter 12, six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Not a little bad thing to have, you know, after your name. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as keeper of the money bag, he used to help, he would help himself to what was put into it. Jesus says in verse 7, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Now, this account, I just, I, I, I mean, I, I love it just for the characters that are here and all that's represented because we know if you, you know, we read the Bible from left to right. You know, you read stories from left to right. You don't jump in the middle of it. And so really to get all that's going on here, you need to, you know, we need to understand the first 11 chapters. But you could just read, go back a couple of chapters and read the story of, 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 of Lazarus and what happens with Lazarus. So here we are, six days before Passover, 
and there's a supper that's being held in Bethany. Almost certainly this is a celebration supper to celebrate Lazarus, who was dead but is no longer dead. So there's a, a celebration that's, that, you know, that, that, that's, that's happening. And this is, I think, the reason why it says there's a supper that's happening in Bethany where, Je- where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. This is, I think, the purpose you know, for the occasion. So there's a, cel- there's a celebration supper happening at somebody's home, and they're all there together. And it's in Bethany, which is about a mile and a half from Jerusalem. I don't think Jesus really liked Jerusalem a whole lot. If you ever go to Israel and you, and you, and you have a chance to go into Jerusalem and hang out a couple of days and you get to go up to the Galilee, I think you would agree with me that he really loved hanging out in the Galilee, Capernaum, that area, and then Jerusalem. is just not the easiest place to be. And, but Bethany, I think, was a place of refuge for him inside of the religious fervor of of, of, of the, the, the place that is Jerusalem. Jesus will love Jerusalem when he comes back and rules and reigns from there. I don't mean that to say, I just think that the, the, at that day, he didn't always, you know, it wasn't as easy for him in his humanity to minister there as I think it was for him in other places. So Bethany, I think, was a place he could really let his hair down, and it, it was a place that was really special to him. It's on the southeastern slope of the, the Mount of Olives, about, the Bible says about, you know, a Passover day's walk, which is, it's, it's been filled in now. You could probably do it in less than that, but it's still a really good hike to make it happen. And so there he is in Bethany, and Lazarus is there, whom Jesus has raised from the dead. He's alive and well at the table with Jesus, hanging out. And then you see these other characters, Martha, who's there. And what's Martha doing? She's working. I mean, it's just, you know, so maybe this is Luke 10. You know, that we're seeing. I don't know, but it's just like you, if you get to know these characters a bit, they all kind of play their role. Lazarus is hanging out. You know, maybe he has, you know, hanging on to his, his robe. Maybe he has a couple of, like, little strands of grave cloth that are still on him. You know, he's, he's, he's an alive guy, but, but, but has quite a story to tell. Mary, or Martha's there serving as she does. And there's Mary, the one whom Jesus says, you know, he rebukes Martha in Luke 10 and says, Martha, Martha, you're, 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 you're actually divided. Your body, your heart, your soul, your mind is divided because you're distracted and you're broken into many things. Just one thing's needed. Just do what your sister's doing. Sit at my feet, learn, hear from me, let me give you revelation, and then you'll be able to serve in, with authority. And so he says, you know, that's the, this is the path you need to choose. So here we find Mary doing what? She's at the feet of Jesus. She's not just sitting here on this occasion but she is demonstrating her love for Jesus in this over-the-top extravagant way. Amen? She has, there's perfume, there's feet, there's hair, there's this wild scene going on where, you know, and and if you want to harmonize all the accounts, in one account she's anointing his head, another his feet. I think it's all of Jesus, and she's letting her hair down, which... By the way, if you know anything about Jewish culture, for a, for a Jewish woman to unbound her hair in public, I, I think we were, Carol and I were flying once, and, you know, if you fly uh, to and from Tel Aviv, oftentimes there's a lot of Orthodox that are on the, depending on what airline you fly, it could be full Orthodox, and, you know, when the Jewish mothers are there, particularly young mothers, they have their kids all around them, and they'll have every, their hair, hair, head covered, and one day we were sitting next to a lady who after a long night of flying, I guess just let her, she took off her head covering for a second and let her hair down, and Carol, like, gasped because her hair was so beautiful. She had this beautiful head of hair, and she's like, I, we, she'd never seen a, a woman. Lo- so it's, it's a very rare thing to even see this publicly. 
But this woman, who does not care, unbounds her hair, and, and she's not concerned with public opinion. There was a woman here in our church um, a few months ago named Petra Scott. She's Raleigh Washington's daughter, uh, who spoke about somebody. She just was giving, offering a prophetic word, and she said, really to all of us, she said, the, the challenge for you is you cannot put humanity above spirituality. That spirituality has to rise above humanity. Your, your human- so our humanitarian concerns or our concern about what people think of us or our concern about what the culture says is right or wrong has to take second place to, to, to this sold-out belief that whatever we do for Jesus is going to be okay. And so she's willing to kind of defy the culture around her to get at his feet and to do what she believes is necessary, which is to fill the house with the fragrance as John says, of this, of this gallon, not gallon, pound of, of perfume. Uh, and it's, you know, it's filled with this fragrance. And I don't know what this fragrance is exactly in terms of, and I don't mean literally, I mean, I mean metaphorically. I believe for Judas, this fragrance was the fragrance of death. That he, he refers to it as, a, as destruction, as perdition. I, I, I believe for for Judas, it was a fragrance of shame. I'll get at this in a bit, just to kind of unpack the differences when you compare and contrast Judas's view of what's happening there and Mary's view of what's happening there. Um, I believe for, for Jesus and for Lazarus, don't you know that Lazarus was anointed when he died? Don't you think when Lazarus smells his smell that it reminds him of the whole process? You know, I think that he's like, man... You know, something, there's something about, you can't ever forget that smell. And I think, while it might remind those who had been around death of, you know, anointing for burial, which Jesus says that's what it's for, for Lazarus, I think it hit his heart a little differently. And it says, though, that, that, that Judas objects. He says, why? In, in verse 5, when you, if you're looking at that passage in John, uh, you know, basically, he's, he's making the argument for good stewardship. He's the treasurer. He's the financial secretary for the congregation. And he's looking at the, the amount of money that's being spilled out here in one single act. And he's, he's, he's offering, actually, a pretty good, from a, from a, you know, if any of you do books or you care about keeping track of money, you know this is about $50,000 or so. And it's about $50,000 that's poured out on the floor. There's a puddle of waste 50,000 sitting there that could have been used to feed people. Um, and, and so it sounds like good stewardship. But here's the thing. Verse 6, kind of John, we don't know how John knows. I, don't, I think maybe Jesus lets him know later. Jesus doesn't out, Lazar, or I mean, out Judas publicly, which I really admire because I would have. You know, if I knew his motives, I think I would have just said, man, you're a snake. You, we all know what you're doing. You know, but Jesus, because he, one of the marks of a, of a really high-level leader is discernment and discretion and when not to speak. And Jesus knows this isn't the time or the place, so he, he, doesn't, he doesn't out him. But John knows uh, somehow, and so in verse 6 it says, he didn't say this because he actually cared about people who were poor, but because he was a thief. And he would embezzle money from the offering. He would take Stuff, you know, that's why, I, you know, I, I cringe when I see Jeff's car up there. Uh, um, kidding. I don't, I don't need, if, by the way, if, I need a truck, not a car. <laughs> Although if I needed a car like that as a sports car, it'd be the Smokey and the Bandit car. 
But you know, in verse 6, the point, that, the point I think that John's getting at is that motives matter. Our motives always matter. And we can't always see motives, can we? And the worst kind of stealing, in my estimation, is, is the kind of stealing that involves the abuse of trust. You know, it's one thing when, if you're walking down the street and a guy comes, you know, and he puts a, pulls a gun, he says, give me all your money. You kind of know what's going on, right? You know, there's no confusion of what's going on inside of their heart, right? But when you find out somebody that you trust really deeply has been stealing, lying, cheating you while telling you something else, doesn't that cut you in a whole different way? You know, there are tons of people who really can't stand hanging around the church because they've been hurt in this way. And Judas, who is one of the insiders, is, is, is abusing the, 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 the wickedness of this action is deep in so many ways. And so Jesus, though, he clarifies for them the situation by, 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 tell, by saying in the next verses, leave her alone. And then he gets at this. He says, this to me is really cool. He says, actually, she's not really doing it the right way. Like, like, I think what he's meaning to say is, Mary is so in love and so enamored with who I am, and she, I mean, she's gotten it in such clear measure that she, she can't wait to give me this gift. You know, it's like the, the child who can't wait to give the gift at Christmas and says, here, here, Daddy, I want to give it to you now. I can't wait. And he's saying that, it, that, that the anointing was intended to be for his burial. So I think not only is Judas foreshadowing the death of Jesus by calling this gift destruction, but, but Mary is foreshadowing for us the death of Jesus. But nobody seems to get that in the room except for, you know, Jesus himself. And again, I think maybe Lazarus, to a certain extent, knows what this means. And he says to her, essentially, he says to them, um, what was intended for my burial, or timing might be off, but I'm not going to rebuke her for her zeal. Which I think is really good news, isn't it? Do you know you can get the timing wrong in your zeal and Jesus won't rebuke you? That makes me really happy (laughs) because I mess that up all the time. Well, I want to just quickly compare then. Compare and contrast. Just take a look at Judas's, the the darkness of Judas's betrayal and the, the brightness of Mary's devotion. Judas is probably deeply shamed by the simplicity of Mary's devotion and the powerful display of her love for him. I think that he recognizes the fact that his heart is, is, is he's in a Genesis, you know, five kind of way. I think Genesis five, his heart is, 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 is wicked and it's every, every intention or every activity of his heart is only evil all the time. And, and outward appearances are, are really, really deceiving, aren't they? Do you know that I, I think I was just talking to somebody in the back before worship about how our outward appearances can be really deceiving. We can, we can be, have one thing going on on the outside, but it's not really what's going on, on the inside. A lot of people have a religious facade, but they're hiding secret sin. A lot of us have a religious facade, but we're hiding secret sin. And when I say us, I mean you. No, I mean all of us. <laughs> no, I mean, do, 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 you, do you agree with me that this is true? That a lot of us, particularly in the Bible Belt, will we'll come with a religious facade. Maybe it's the way we dress up or maybe it's the way we raise our hands in worship or maybe it's the way that we use Christian language or maybe it's the way that we have an outwardly you know, good-looking life. Um, but we can be hiding stuff that's deeply, deeply wrong. Judas, from the outside looking in, looked like the guy who had 
the word for the occasion. This is being wasted. This could be used for something else. His evil is actually cloaked in nobility. Taking care of the poor. Isn't this a little much? You know, that's kind of the, the notion here. And, that, and what I think happens is when people who are leaders who have this facade will, will make these bold declarations that feel noble, like couldn't this be used for the poor? When they make these bold declarations, there's a contagion. It's contagious. And I believe the reason that Matthew and Mark are, are saying that they asked the question, isn't this a waste? It's because Judas's leadership was significant enough that people could be swayed one way or the other. And when he says this, I think that he captured the crowd. And they're like, yeah, isn't this a waste? And I want you to think about it. I want you to be honest. If you're reading this from a literal perspective, imagine today. Just, to, I mean, su- suspend all the disbelief and just imagine I don't know, Becca, can I use you? Becca somehow has, somebody gives her like a pallet of the most expensive perfume. Let's just say it's worth about $50,000, $60,000 retail. And it's given to her for free. And she says, look, I've got this incredible gift that was given. I want to give it to the church. And she, I'm going to bring it on Sunday. And we're like, wow, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, that's that's a, like a year's wages, and you're just going to give it? She's like, yeah, I think that the thing to do is I just want to offer it to Jesus. And we go, okay. And so Becca shows up, and in the middle of worship, you know, Brian's singing a song, and the spirit begins to really fall on the place. And Becca is so moved by the presence of Jesus in the room that she just begins to un, she just undoes the boxes and just begins to smash it all. Just all of it, a puddle on the ground. Just be honest. Would you think that was a good use of it? How many of you would, how many of you would be willing to, to say that if that happened right here, that we watched $50,000, $60,000 just on the floor and it began to the smell of that fill the room, we'd go, wow, that was a really cool offering to Jesus. <laughs> what if she had $50,000, $60,000 cash she'd been given and the offering bucket's going around and she just says, I'm just going to start ripping it up into shreds. And I'm going to light it on fire and burn it right here as a burnt offering to Jesus. And you go, man, that's a really great thing. I love your devotion to Jesus. How many of you would say, something weird happened to church today on Facebook. <laughs> I kind of always figured it'd be Becca. <laughs> now that Nancy's not around. I mean, seriously, how many of you would think this is a good thing? How many would see it as a good thing? And, and, the thing is, is that was it a waste? Why this waste? In some sense, I have to go, yeah, you know, it seems like a waste. Like, you know, a lot, a lot could have been done with that. But it isn't the way that Jesus saw it. You know, both Mary and Judas, as far as I can tell, both Mary and, Jews and Judas wanted the same thing. They both pursued a treasure. They both wanted happiness at this deep level, and they both pursued it. And they believed that, that, they, that there's this treasure that would make them happy, that would provide for them something that they couldn't have apart from it. And to Mary, Jesus was the priceless pearl. He was the treasure in the field. He was the one for whom it was worth going and selling everything she had to, to, to buy this the field to lay hold of it. She wasted 
And she wanted, she was willing to waste everything she had because she wanted that pearl more than anything else in her life. And to Judas, 30 pieces of silver was a fair price for the pearl. Judas's sin wasn't that he wanted happiness. His sin was believing that having money would make him happier than having Jesus. So we just say, oh, Judas, it's such a tragedy. You're a treasurer, but the way that you calculated this situation, it's so tragic. The pearl that's worth more than the entire universe sits in front of you, and all you can see are perfume puddles. You grieve over a year's wages while you squander this infinite, eternal treasure that's right here in front of you. Jesus leads all of those who are his disciples, to these moments, these watershed moments like Mary and Judas have. He leads you and I to these same sorts of watershed moments where we're confronted by what are we going to do with our lives? How will we spend ourselves? And they're designed to make us count the cost. His grace isn't cheap. When we come together next Sunday to celebrate his resurrection and we're confronted by the the way that goes through the cross, we come to the recognition that when he offers us eternal life that we don't deserve, it's not cheap. He drinks the entire cup of God's wrath that we might have this treasure. Whoever loses his life, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. John says later in this same chapter. These moments that Jesus allows us to enter into force us to choose what we really believe is gain and what's waste. Right? And, the, and the choices we make, the motives that are in our heart, and then the external choices that we make reveal whether we value pearl or puddles. And if we choose the pearl a great price, we, what we will hear in Judas's appraisal of Mary is what we hear in the world's appraisal of us. They watch us uh, as, as we spend or waste our time or our intellect or our money, or our youth, or our financial future, or our vocations, as all these things are poured out at the feet of Jesus, they'll look at us and maybe even scoff and go, what a waste, why this waste? And they watch these puddles on the floor of churches and mission fields and orphanages and homes where children are raised uh, in the fear and admonition of the Lord and careers are laid aside and And what they see, what the world will see in this is foolish waste. Here's what I'm trying to say. If you are going to actually go on, as Brian talked about last week, you're going to go into the fire. You trust the fact that the fourth man is going to come into that fire and he's going to save you. But even if he doesn't, I I trust him. I'll go in because he has the power to take my life back. Whatever he does, I trust it. If you are willing to do this with your life and lay your whole life at the feet of Jesus, do not expect the respect of the world. That's the simplest way I can say it. If what you want is to follow Jesus with everything you've got and have people who don't get it look at you and say, this seems really cool to me, you will never be happy. And I don't mean that to say that we, we can't have real, deep, abiding relationships. In fact, one of the great sins of the church is when we become a church ghetto. 
And we believe that the only way we can grow close to Jesus is just by hanging out with each other. We need to interact with the world. But here's what I'm saying. Do not expect the world to understand this costly sacrifice that you're willing to pour out. When you pour a year's worth of wages at the feet of Jesus, don't expect the world to say good job. It's, it's, it's confronting and confounding. And Jesus, I believe, actually wants us to waste our life like Mary wasted her perfume. It's really not true waste. It's true worship and a poured out life, a life that's given fully to Jesus like this that counts worldly gain as loss just displays how precious he really is. It preaches, this message preaches to a bewildered and to a world that would disdain this sort of thing that Jesus is gain and I'll take him. And Jesus says, you know, leave her alone. Because he, he, you know, he says this message will be, will be taught wherever, you know, wherever we go for the rest of the age, this story will be taught. And, and so my question to you, and I'm going to use this to kind of wrap up. In what way are you wasting your life? Jesus says... Leave her alone. If we are extreme in our love for Jesus, he won't criticize us. Lazarus will. I mean, uh, Judas will. Uh, but, but Jesus won't. He won't criticize us. Jesus will defend you in every situation of self-surrender. You give up. You say, you know what, Jesus, I just got to give you myself, and I'm not sure if I'm doing it the right way or at the right time, but if it's about me, here it is. I lay it at your feet. Jesus is not going to criticize that. He's not going to, he's not going to rebuke you. He will defend you in every situation of self-surrender, every situation of self-denial. He'll defend you in that, every situation of self-giving. When you're like, you know, I could do this with my life, but I feel called by you, God, to do this. He'll defend you in that decision. Every situation of sacrificial giving, every situation of worship, every situation of consecration, when you, when you prepare yourself, as Mary prepared the body of Jesus, to, to die to self that you might rise up and live with him, he'll defend that decision. My, I think one of my heroes in the faith and he would, if he were alive and here now, he would, he would rebuke me for calling him, using that word. But one of my heroes in the faith, a man I never met, but I know a lot about his life and I've spent a lot of time around his life as a guy, as a missionary by the name of Nate Saint. And uh, he's a man who, uh, who gave his life in Ecuador to reaching people who were desperately detached from the world and hopelessly lost because he believed that Jesus... It, it, his, he was willing to die for them. He said, if, if they're worthy of the death of my Lord, they're worthy of my death. And in fact, he died at the end of a spear trying to reach these people. And he preached a message. He was, a, he was drafted into the army to be a pilot, uh, but had battled sicknesses that, that kept him, prevented him from ever becoming a pilot in World War II. But as he reflected on what it meant for pilots to serve in World War II, he preached a message called expendability. And in this message, he basically says this. He says, reflecting on how our country, because of a great enemy, was willing to build machines and fill those machines with men who would go into battle and live minutes. And the, and, and the government, our country, determined and deemed those machines and men expendable because of this great evil they were fighting. 
thousands of men lost their lives serving this way in bombers and going over and, and were shot down. And, and he says that while these men were willing, and our country was willing to offer men and equipment at great price to fight a great evil, countless Christians sit home while a greater evil rages in the world. And he said the reason why is because we don't believe that our lives are expendable. We don't believe that it's worth giving our lives for whether it's your neighborhood or your family or the other side of the world, that we, 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 we will categorize people who seem to live a more radical life as a super Christian or as a hero to justify, well, this is what Nate Saint said, you call me a hero to justify your lukewarm following. And so this is what he says. This is, I say all that to, to give you this quote. He said, people who do not know the Lord ask me all the time, why in the world I waste my life as a missionary? And he said, they forget that they too are expending their lives. And when the bubble is burst, they'll have nothing of eternal significance to show for the years they have wasted. He says, essentially, we're all spending our lives on something. And so my question to close is the question I asked earlier. We are preparing to enter into this week and we're going to walk through. I pray you'll walk through as Jesus does every day. You'll pass by the cross that you'll get stuck there on Friday and you'll make our way to Sunday. And then I, but the question is this, what are you wasting your life on? What are you spending your life on? Stand with me. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you would remove any obstacle that would prevent any of my family, my spiritual family, my brothers and sisters, my, the friends that are visiting, anybody that's here, that you would remove any obstacle that would prevent anyone here from receiving fully what you desire to pour into them. Father, I pray like in Lazarus' life when he was stuck in a grave that the people of Bethany rolled away the stone, that brothers and sisters alongside of each other here today would be willing to roll stones away that would keep someone entombed and captured and stuck in death. But I also pray, Lord, that we would go beyond the exterior facade of living a good life and that we would allow Jesus to move in and invade the deep places, that we would be willing to pour our lives out, literally waste our lives on Jesus. It's a confronting word, Lord. I want to save everything. I want to waste nothing. But Lord, I pray that you would give me the courage to spend my life entirely as you'd have me spend it. If you want to come up and join me here, I'm just going to pray. It's what I do. At the end of a message, I'll pray and you can join me. Or if you want prayer, you don't have to pray on your own. We will gladly pray with you as we close the song. Jesus, we worship you. Jesus, we worship you. And I bring to you 
fragrant offering I pour out my love and I wash your feet I offer up to you oh Lord this brokenness which you can see in me so be my confidence oh yeah and may it be a pleasing fragrance that I bring to you, oh my Lord. I am so in need of your presence. I bow before you. I put my vile words over you. I put my vile words over you. Let's sing the first verse. I bring to you fragrant offering. I pour out my love and I wash your I offer up to you, Lord, this comfort. What you can see in me shall be my confidence. Oh, and may it be pleasing, fragrance I bring to you, oh, my Lord. I'm so Put my Bible worship over you. I put my Bible. Second verse. I bring to you humble sacrifice. I want out my love. I give you my life. I want to. With absolute abandon, my love, I confess, oh, yeah, 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 baby,
And I pour my vial of worship over you I pour my vial of worship over you I'm going to pray and we'll go home And if you want to stay for prayer uh, Stay, come on up and we'll, we'll pray Whatever is going on in your life